Hi everyone, this is Ruthie just popping in at the top to let you know that I ended up having some audio issues in recording most of this episode, so if you hear my voice and you notice that it sounds weird, it's probably me and not any issues with your headphones or speakers. Big apologies for that, and now I will say goodbye so that you can listen to the episode. Bye! Hello and welcome to With the First Link, the podcast that hopes to make our future as bright and as just as the one that we see in Star Trek The Next Generation. And we think that one way to do that is to recap and discuss the entire series one episode at a time, doing our best to look at it all through an anti-oppression, pro-diversity, anti-racist lens. I'm Ruthie Cowper Samoshi. And I'm Matthew Simone, and today we'll be talking about Unnatural Selection. This episode was written by John Mason and Mike Gray and directed by Paul Lynch. It first aired on January 28th, 1989. Before the check-in, we just have a couple of little announcements. So, Matthew, you want to start? Yes, I have not yet gone to Mission <laughs> Chicago. So the announcement was to say that at the time of recording this, that convention hasn't happened yet. So in the last episode, we had talked about going there, uh, but that hasn't happened yet. So we'll have updates from the convention next week or whatever the next episode is after this one. But in this, but when this episode airs, it will have already happened. It will have already happened, yes. yes. So the, the convention will have happened, but uh, at the time of recording, I haven't gone there yet. But we're excited because there I will be hosting or moderating the Trektivism panel as we mentioned in the last episode. So uh, hopefully that has gone well by the time you were listening to this one. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. And what about you? You have you have special announcements for today. Yeah. So we've got uh, an interview in this episode. We are moving up in the world. Yeah. So I, I interviewed my sister, who is a Star Trek fan uh, and also a bioinformatician and a biostatistician. Uh, so I, we, I, I talked to her about some of the science aspects of this episode. And yeah, we had a great talk about genetics and antibodies and Star Trek and sci-fi. Uh, and that you'll hear in the in this episode. So yeah, a little, little, couple little teasers for you. Science! 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 Love it. Okay, let's check in, Matthew. Let's talk about aging. Yes, I have never been comfortable with the concept of aging. Okay. And I think it's because I always have ageismed myself, like my whole life. Uh, and almost every stage of my life, I've rather than saying like, oh, I've hit, you know, whatever age now, it's been like, oh, now I'm too old to do this, or now I'm too old to do that. And I, I know it's probably silly, but it sits in my brain that I'm always behind some unknown schedule in my life. And then that's so that's the thing with age. I've been trying more recently to embrace the idea that I'm now more experienced. Yeah. Uh, in one of the Facebook groups I follow uh, that's about video games, people consider birthdays as leveling up. <laughs> so they'll post the, like this this person has hit level 30 today or this person has hit level 40 today. So you're like a level 40 human, you know, when you hit that next Right. Uh, that next era of life. So uh, that's, I think, a more positive way to look at it. But yeah, I've always struggled with this idea of aging and, and how to see it in, in a positive light. 
Yeah. I think with, with like saying that about how you, you've always felt like you're sort of behind or like you're too old for certain things or too late for certain things. I mean, I agree with you that that's like probably silly, but also I think it's important to recognize that that doesn't come from nowhere. Like we live in a world that values youth and that schedule that you imagine you're behind, you didn't make it up entirely yourself. Right. So what is, why is that? Why do we have that, that such an, a youth-obsessed society? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I wonder if it has to do with, like, just it's, it's one way to ensure that people will feel like they're not good enough because, mm-hmm. like, you know, once you pass, I don't know, 25 or whatever, and your body starts changing in ways that are not celebrated... Yeah, your body's not going to go back to what it was at at 25. And you you won't have the same, perhaps the same outlook on life, because like you said, there's more experience. And so that's a huge swath of the population who will be now buying products and paying for services to try to get back to, to that youthful appearance or outlook or, or whatever. So that's, you know, that's good for capitalism, I guess. Yeah. And so maybe that's what it is, is if we look at the way that our society is established and the focus on eternal productivity and always being more productive and ensuring you feel yeah. productive, yeah. there is that association then with youth because then that's when you're at the most productive. And then as you age, we kind of just want to shuffle the elderly off into the corners of society and are often marginalized and abused. And... Whereas if you lived in a society that valued wisdom and knowledge, mm-hmm. then the elderly would be the most valued members of the community because they're the ones that are the keepers and retainers of that knowledge and, and maintenance of culture. Yeah. I mean, I also think that we have, as a society, we have a really complicated relationship with age because we value youth, but we don't really value children. Ooh. And I think that that is also important. I think that, yeah, a, a society that that valued wisdom and knowledge would, for sure, place a higher value on people who are much older than, than we do right now. But I also think that we need to place a higher value on the inquisitiveness of children and not sort of, I was interested, interesting. I was uh, in a workshop the other day where this came up. So it's fresh in my mind, but yeah, just this idea of like children should be seen, but not heard or questions mm-hmm. are uh, inconvenient for people or, but you should still have them, right? There's that too. Yeah, There's you that should dynamic. Have like... them, but, and, and we talked about this a while ago when we talked about interdependence, but like this idea that like they are solely the responsibility of their parents and, and this is a very like, I don't know, Eurocentric view for sure. But yeah, just this idea of like children are a burden, but but you should have that burden, but you shouldn't impose yeah. that burden on anyone else. Like it's, so it's like, we're all trying to reach 25 or like, I don't know, 23 to 27. And then after that, that's when we are at the pinnacle of our productivity, of our usefulness. And then after that, it's all 
downhill. And that's really sad. In terms of the inquisitiveness, that sort of that that childhood wonder. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the things that I try to maintain through life. And I, you know, and I, I wonder if that's why, either consciously or unconsciously, these moments with my grandfather when I was a child are the ones that I retain so much because they are the moments where I felt the first experiences of of sincere and genuine wonder were with him looking mm-hmm. at stars. Yeah. But he was old, you know, yeah. at that time. And I, I didn't think of, I certainly as a child didn't think of him as like a useless old person. In fact, I like revered him. Yeah. And thinking of that, one thing I recall him saying to me as I grew older, and I think when I hit my... I think when he had hit his 85th birthday or 90th, but I remember we were celebrating his birthday as a family out at, at his cottage. And he had said to me in a discussion about age, he said, you you never grow old until you decide to stop learning. Oh, that's nice. That's what he said. Yeah. And my, my mom asked to have that quote on a, a photo. So I, she has it on a, that quote from my grandfather on a photo of mine of the Aurora above the cottage so oh, there's northern nice. lights at the cottage because we used to see northern lights there quite often i I've t- i took them for granted when i was younger because i didn't realize how much of canada doesn't actually get aurora but in yeah, northern ontario we get it right yeah in northern ontario we used to get them all the time and, and you just i just thought everywhere gets aurora frequently but it wasn't until i got older and learned more about space that you realize oh that's not true and especially yeah. moving down to toronto where you don't see the sky at Never. all <laughs> even, <laughs> there's like stars. there's stars up there you know yeah, yeah you don't even see yeah. that you don't even see stars so say, that, say it again, you're never old. Yeah, I might be paraphrasing a bit, but it was, it was something along the lines of, you don't grow old until you decide to stop learning. Until you decide to stop learning. Yeah, that's I like yeah. that. And if there's one thing about my grandfather is that he was he's just such an inquisitive mind. And right. I always really appreciate that about him. He was an explorer, like through and through. So yeah, like while I, I gained my love of astronomy through the inspiration of my grandfather, but it was it was more than that. He, he was fascinated at everything. He like plants mushrooms like and so the 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 area around the cottage was such a playground for him and for us like around him as kids because he always wanted to show you everything around and and just inspired you to be interested in in the world like in the universe and to to want to explore and ask questions and he was always reading like magazines about about stuff about anything like you know he right. just wanted to learn and i i always really appreciated that about him that he was always so interested in the world and i remember one time we were at the cottage and i complained about being bored yeah because I, I didn't know what to do with myself because i was a kid yeah and he was like he's like no one should ever be bored because they have this and i remember him tapping me on the head you know <laughs> indicating my brain and i always thought about that he's like the mind should always have enough stuff around to be engaged with right huh. so you know. that's it's funny that you said that i was thinking of um of something that my grandmother said many years ago when she was getting up there and really feeling her age. And I think, you know, her body wasn't able to do all of the things that she wanted it to do. And that was really frustrating for her. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, we were on a vacation together and and it was, you know, she couldn't, she couldn't be as active as she used to be. And I said to her, you know, I saw her uh, and I said, how are you? How, how are you doing? I said, I, or I think I said, how are you? And she kind of sighed and she said, old. Yeah. And then she said, but it's better than the alternative. Yeah. <laughs> and I always, I, you know, I just really appreciated that. But I mean, not to, there is a little bit of the whole, well, it could always be worse sort of mentality, which 
I think can be helpful, but can also be like, you know, we're allowed to complain, but it just also like, yeah, no, that's what happens is we get old. And if you don't get old, then that's, that's sad for other reasons. So yeah, of course, yeah. better than the alternative. But I also like, I, I loved spending time with my grandparents and I think I was really lucky in that all, I think all of my grandparents had like a, a playful streak at least a little bit. So, so I got to really enjoy that as a, as a kid, but I, I don't think I have quite the same fear of aging as you do, but I, I do feel like I'm kind of baffled by it. Like I know that I am, I mean, I'm not, I'm not that old. Like I'm, I'm 36 years old. That's not old, but I, I know that I am very different now from how I was 10 years ago. Sure. But I don't know that I could like explain those differences. Oh. You know, like I know I'm different. I know I look different. But when I started teaching, I was 23 years old and people would think that I was a student because I, I've always like looked pretty young for my age. And then, and I was quite young when I started teaching. Now I know that doesn't happen. People don't look at me and think I'm a kid, but I don't like, I don't know what it is about my face that makes it different. And, and I also, I know that I am different. I know that I behave in different ways, but I can't like quite put my finger on why that is. So I'm, I'm not like, oh, that's a terrible thing, but I just, yeah, I'm just kind of baffled. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. I've been thinking about that myself, actually, how have I changed over the last, like if I were to bump into someone I hadn't seen in 10 years. Yeah. How would I explain? Here's how I, here's how I'm different now. Besides yeah. the fact that I've I've gone like fifty percent gray or whatever, but, but you it's like up what? I, there's a lot of purple in my hair again. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> is that a way to maintain youth? I don't. Know. I just like purple. Actually, part of that I feel like is is embracing who I am as a person. Yeah, and that it's like I've always liked purple. Why don't I put that in my hair? You know. Yeah, and I think part of in, in my own aging process is I feel like I've grown more into the person that I was that I've wanted to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And 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 trying to do things and that I wouldn't normally have tried like I you know like a podcast for example. For I've sure. only wanted to do something like that for a while but I never really had um you know the I wouldn't say the opportunity but some of it was like the the nerve to, mm-hmm. to try to do something like that. So, yes. No, um, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's about the nerve. I also probably wouldn't have started something like this 10 years ago because I would have been too like the yeah, and so that's that's the one thing. I struggle with a lot of anxiety, so it takes me a long time to work up the nerve to to do some things. And so in that sense, I wish I had more time <laughs> in the aging process. Like I would I would go for another hundred years. Like if I could live two hundred years, I'd be like th- I'd be solid with that's that. That's what because, you said in the last episode. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I were saying that, yeah, because I, I just feel like I I want to have more time to just explore and learn about stuff and to try things and do stuff. And yeah. It just it takes me a while. Like it's taken me you know, like I, I'm 40 now and I only just feel like I've really kind of started life. Yeah. All right. Oof. There's a, there's a lot in there. <laughs> there's so much stuff in there. Yeah. What I definitely would not want to have happen is the aging rapidly without like the rest of the time and wisdom <laughs> and everything else just to be cheated of the time, just to uh, which is what happens person. in this episode. Yeah. 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 So in this episode, the Enterprise investigates a mysterious aging disease at a genetic research facility and Dr. Pulaski becomes infected. Oh, Dr. Pulaski. 
Dr. Pulaski. Yeah. I, I like Pulaski more every time I watch Pulaski episodes. Uh, I feel like this episode was maybe, they were like, well, we've shown her to be a pretty horrible person for the last little while. Let's, yeah. let's see if we can endear, how do you say, endear her to the audience? Endear yeah, the I audience think to I, her? Yeah, sure that, that I think works. that makes sense. And yeah. also, she gets to spend some, like, quality time with Data. Yeah, and she only makes, like, two or three comments about him being an android. Right, so. right. And realizes that's actually a lot to their advantage right now yes and that he regardless of how he's treated he still wants to like help her out yes and stuff yes because he's awesome he's crying. he is a good person yeah so we start off the ship is on its way to star station india for a reason that we will never learn hey ruthie what's what's the difference between a space station and a star station i wondered this when i watched the episode i feel like that's a setup for it like a pun no, it's not. No, I was like, <laughs> no, I was like genuinely curious. I don't, I don't know. No, I don't know. I can see why it might have felt that way. Yeah, but yeah, I don't. I was like, what's what's? I was like a star station. I was like, what's the difference between that and a space station? Anyways, yeah, doesn't matter. But we're we're never gonna find out uh, why they're going there. But Picard says that it has something to do with medical stuff, and Picard says he's looking forward to like having more opportunities to assess. Pulaski's performance as the chief medical officer, which, mm-hmm. you know, kind of makes you, makes me wonder if he is not satisfied with her performance. Yeah. And the, Troy will go into this more later, but I almost wonder if it's because she in some ways is too much like Picard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Another like, how does Troy puts it later is like strongly established personalities. Yeah. I'm going to use that more often myself. But like, <laughs> That person is a very strongly established personality. Uh, <laughs> sure. But anyways, Troy's part of this because Picard wants her assessment of of Pulaski. So Troy enters the ready room and asks, you know, she's like, he's like, please sit down and and let's talk about Pulaski. So Troy says that she's the most dedicated physician she's ever met and has a clear passion for her work. Yeah. And then Picard wonders if this passion interferes with her judgment, which... Yeah, what does that mean? I don't... It's interesting because she's It's like she loves her job too much. She can't yeah. make proper decisions. I mean, like, something what? that I have definitely seen among, like, in my profession is, like, teachers have to be really careful that, like, they don't lose themselves in the lives of their students or that they don't, like, they don't tie up their own worth as a person with what their students are capable of doing or with how much their students like them. Like, I mean, to me, that's about boundaries, right? Of course. But I also feel like if this is just Picard almost looking for something to be unhappy with. I feel like, is this a she's too emotional kind of, I was wondering about that because I was like, if she were a dude, would this, would this conversation be happening? I mean, I don't think it would. For a variety no. of reasons, but I also yeah. like, I don't think the writers would ever write that. But I also don't think that she's yeah. like a super emotional character. No, yeah. So it's it's I, yeah, you're right. So I feel like they were. What I got from this scene is that this is going to be a Pulaski episode. <laughs> but the point of this, the dialogue is not like the motivation for this part of the dialogue isn't really clear. Yeah. Other than they're just going to be like, this is an episode about Pulaski. Cool. Yeah. Because I don't. She hasn't really had her own like singular episode yet. No, think, we've just right? kind of seen no. her. Well, I mean, maybe a little bit with the Sherlock Holmes. That was more about Data, though. But we, yeah, that she was, was more a hostage than anything. Saw. We saw the most of yeah. her there, I think. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, so we're we're gonna get to know her. 
We're going to get to know her. Data calls from the bridge and says that they're picking up a distress signal from an adjacent sector. And on the bridge, they enter, and the USS Lantry, though through a lot of static, so it's like the USS Lantry is communicating with them, and it's like, ah, yeah. and they say that they can't hold out anymore, that they are dying. They're like, they we're dying. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's uh, too many to help, uh, and then the message ends, and they just hear, like, static, and they can't communicate back with them anymore, and then we fade into the intro. Yeah. So Picard, when we come back from the intro, Picard continues to call out to the Lantry and gets no answer. So they decide to investigate. They plot an intercept course. And when they get to the Lantry, they hail them. And the Lantry is, like, still moving. Like, Picard checks. He's like, is it still underway? And and it is. But they, they hail them. They get no answer. There are no life signs. Troy doesn't sense anything. And then there are also, like, there are no other vessels around. There's no battle damage on the ship. So it's very mysterious as to why there would be no life signs. Yeah, the, sh- the ship isn't even crooked in space. No, it's just flying. It's just flying, right? Because that's that's the universal sign that something's wrong with your spaceship in yeah, Star Trek. Is that it's crooked. right side up. It's like side... Yeah, you're not the right <laughs> way. <laughs> you're not oriented the same way as the rest of other ships. Yeah. You're crooked. Yeah. So Worf wants to board... And this is, oh, this episode has a, not a lot, but a little bit of, like, Worf reacting and Picard being like, mm, no. <laughs> no, yeah, it's just always shut down. Like, no. Yeah, or well, even yeah, one let's time, go like, aboard. Nope. later on, there's one time when, like, Riker agrees with him, but, like, Worf says something and Picard's like, Riker, what do you think? Like, just <laughs> ignoring poor Worf. Yeah, but anyway, nope. Worf wants to board, but Riker suggests that they can get remote access to the ship's view screen if they, you know, gain access uh, to, to the ship. And so Picard uses his access security code. I always love hearing their security codes. I don't know why. This time it's Omicron, Omicron, Alpha, Yellow, Daystar, 27. Yeah, I think writers, the writers are like, hey, we get to make a cool security code yeah. in this one. What is it going to be? And they, they also mentioned like 14 times whenever they bring up the name of the ship. They always say it's like Captain Talaka commanding. Captain Talaka. Uh, so Captain Talaka is the guy who's in charge of the ship. And I guess kind of like... They've established since, I think, Wrath of Khan, I guess, that Federation starships can control each other. And this is for security purposes in case one of the ships is ever taken over. Or in this instance, when it's now like adrift and they need to figure out what's going on. Yeah, so they gain remote access. It's kind of like when you let someone like gain access to your computer screen remotely. Yeah, it's like it's like Windows. What is this? Team Viewer? No, no. What is it? Yeah, I think so. Team Viewer where you could like sign into someone else's computer. Remote desktop. Yeah. 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 So it's like that, except it's for the ship. And they so they gain access to the view screen. And at this point, everyone has entered the bridge. LaForge has transferred engineering to the bridge. Pulaski has come to the bridge. And they turn on the view screen. And everyone has just collapsed. And they're like, they look really old. Yeah, they're like dead in their chairs. Yeah. And Riker says, uh, it looks like they had a battle with time. And then Worf helpfully adds, and lost. And lost. Yeah, <laughs> so good. It's one of my favorite Worf lines. Yeah. <laughs> so Pulaski says that they've died of natural, like he's, she's scanning them and she's like, they've died of natural causes. And obviously Picard's like, well, what could be natural <laughs> this about this? This is not natural, yeah. It's not natural, but they have died of old age. Yeah. So now they're on the observation lounge and they listen to Captain Talaka's last log and he doesn't know... What's happened, but over the last few hours, the crew has started to grow old 
and die and they've like hyper aged. Yeah. And I was actually thinking about this because a lot of the time when people die of old age, it's not just that like people get old and then like, so just, just like that, like their, their life ends. It's like they, you know, that comes with a lot of like organ failure or like things like cancers or, you know, stuff like that. So I was like, is that happening at this like super speed? So like they're getting terminal illnesses or terminal diseases that are just like coming up, but like really fast. And oh, it it made me, it it was upsetting to think about. So, so now you can all think about that and how upsetting it is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So what has happened? We don't know. Yeah. Uh, oh, Riker says at one point here that they're trying to emphasize the fact that although we have, there there are elderly actors that are playing the stand-ins yeah. or the sit-ins, I guess in this case yeah. on the on the on the lantry, Riker emphasizes that the crew is actually quite young <clears throat> and that Captain Talaka was his age. Okay, I is this a continuity error? Because I thought there was a thing later on where it was like Riker's plan was to be the youngest captain in Starfleet. Maybe that's why he knows Talaka because Talaka beat him to it. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. That is a thing, <laughs> wreck, isn't it? Riker it. wanted to be the youngest captain. I don't know, actually. Or that, like that he was on track to be the youngest captain or something. Possibly, yeah. yeah. I think at in Star Trek history, and I put in quotation marks, I think Captain Kirk was the youngest captain up until this point. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. But maybe you don't want to be the youngest captain. Why not be older and have, have wisdom? Listen, there's nothing saying. wrong with starting things when you're a little older. I agree. Yeah, and Riker certainly does. <laughs> in the end, yeah. In the end, he's probably like the, the oldest, oldest captain. Cap- the oldest captain to like get his first command. <laughs> first command. 58 or whatever. Listen, yeah, it's never that's too fine. late. It's okay. Never too late. Pulaski says that the entire crew had like a complete examination eight weeks ago because that was the start of the duty cycle. There were no health problems. And then recently the first officer was treated for Thalusian flu, which is a harmless rhinal virus. It's actually just a flu. It actually is. Not like when people say other <laughs> rhinal viruses are just, a- are just a flu. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's something little. And they're, they've, they determined that the Landry's last stop was the Darwin Genetic Research Station on Gagarin 4, uh, which I would like to point out is named after Yuri Gagarin, who was the first person in space, uh, which is just kind of cool. Well, that's the planet. The station itself is named after Darwin. Yes. I think. Yeah, there are a lot of things <laughs> named after. Yes. Yeah, so, the, yeah, no, that is very true. <laughs> the Darwin <laughs> Genetic Research Station is named after Charles Darwin, who is very famous for genetics. And yep. Gagarin for is named after Yuri Gagarin, who's the first person in space. And so yes. they decide to go and check on the Darwin station, but they quarantine the Lantry. And I actually thought it was really cool how they do that. Yeah, it's all like blinky with lights. And there's this audio message that's repeating. And it's like, the Lantry is under quarantine. Do not approach under any circumstances. And it's just like broadcasting into space. Yeah. So if you get too close, you you hear that on all frequencies. And they also like put on these, I can't remember what Riker calls them, but basically they're like, he's like, we're going to need to find the ship again. So put on its like tracking beakers or whatever. Yeah. So on Gagarin 4, Dr. Kingsley, who's the person in charge there, tells them that they have just declared a medical emergency and Pulaski asks asks what the medical emergency is. And Kingsley is very suspicious at first, but apparently she's like, well, who am I speaking to? And she's like, well, this is Kate Pulaski. And she's like, she's like, Catherine Pulaski, the the author of Linear Models of Viral Propagation? And Pulaski's like, well, yeah, that was that was a long time ago. And she's like, still, it's it's the like the standard model of understanding viral propagation. So yeah. they have this kinship now, and Kingsley has this respect for Pulaski because of, of her past research. And she says that they're experiencing the onset of rapid geriatric phenomenon. 
and that the first symptom is acute arthritic inflammation, and then the aging process accelerates. So very similar to what we've seen on the Lantry. And then Kingsley, who the actor playing Kingsley is clearly not 35. She's like 58. She says, I looked it up. She was like 58 when they filmed this. She was 58 when she filmed it. She's like, I just celebrated my 35th birthday last week. So Yeah. And there's like a like pause as everyone like takes that in. Like, oh, you're 35. Okay, this is the problem. Oh, like, okay, you're old. <laughs> you're older now than you should be. Yeah. But they think it's from the Lantry. They think the Lantry brought this aging disease to them. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's their thought. They're like, there's she she says there's no way that it's any of our genetic research. I don't. That's the, right. The reason she gives, she's like, no, no, no. We only study human genetics. There's no way it's us, and that doesn't compute for me. But whatever. And Picard tells her that the entire crew of the Lantry is dead and of of this old age. And there's a little bit of um. He's a little surprised by how she reacts because she's like, oh, yeah, well, that sounds about right. And he's like, no, no, listen, they're dead. <laughs> like He's like, yeah, did you not hear me? I just said the entire crew is dead. And she's yeah. like, well, that's why we need to we need to figure out what to do. It, But her priority is their children. There yeah. are children at this facility and Kingsley wants the Enterprise to evacuate them. Yeah. And Pulaski's like, no way. Like, you are under quarantine. We are <laughs> yeah, not taking not happen. your children with this clearly highly infectious disease here. Yeah, and Kingsley is stressing that they, they can't possibly be infected because they've been in isolation the entire time. And Picard says that they will consider the possibilities. Yeah. So in the observation lounge, Worf is like, we shouldn't bring them aboard. And then Picard's like, what do you think, Riker? And Riker's like, yeah, no, we shouldn't bring them aboard. So... <laughs> yeah it's like nope I don't want to I don't want to end up like that yeah well yeah for sure and Pulaski makes a good point which is that if they are free of disease they should be evacuated for their safety yeah and so she wants to examine one in isolation she's like listen I can put up a force field to set up an isolation field and and examine one of the children within the force field to seal them off from the rest of the ship yeah and and Troy says that Kingsley isn't lying. She believes that the children are safe, but there's something that she is hiding. So, you know, we need to, we need to be cautious. And Pulaski suggests then putting this kid in, putting one of the kids in Styrolite, which I guess is like. It's like, it's like cling wrap for people. Yes. Um, (laughs) And like in stasis. So this, this kid is basically like in suspended animation. And she says like, because Riker says, you won't know what you're looking for. And she's like, yeah. And I, I will continue to not know until we actually start looking. We don't know what we're looking for. Right. We need data. We need information. Yes. We need. And then we're literally, we'll need data later. Yeah. Well, yeah, (laughs) that too. So Picard says, okay, we'll do that. But I need positive proof that the children are harmless. And I would like to point out that that is generally not possible. You can never have positive proof that something won't happen. Yeah, and I think with Picard, it's like, that is the standard I need in my brain. But I think at the same time, recognizing it may not entirely be possible. Like, that's what we're always looking for, is that perfect point of of, of then we can make the decision more easily because we know that they're, the children are harmless. Yeah, but, but you can We might have to get as close that to that as possible. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in Sick Bay, LaForge activates this like fancy force field that we haven't seen before. Yeah. Uh, we can, like, it, see it actually, we can see it. It reminded me of the, of the effect from 
the oh, the, oh, the episode time one where the time one yeah, yeah the one because the woman it from almost the looks like and the papas. yeah it's like diff- it looks like diffraction from like glass you know like yeah. with, like a bunch of glass panels I don't think we ever see a force field like that again but it's actually kind of a neat effect but yeah. anyways we've we've sealed now basically one of the examination tables within this cylindrical glassy looking force field yeah and then they uh. They call over to the transporter chief, and Cole Meany's character has a name. O'Brien! He's O'Brien. Now, here is a fun fact. <laughs> fun fact. This is according to IMDb's trivia page. So, O'Brien was, like, added to the teleplay kind of at the last minute, because originally there was going to be a young engineer genius named Rena. Okay. Uh, a woman whose beauty caused male colleagues to repeatedly experience pratfalls. Okay. And then, like, the showrunner was like, this is ridiculous. And yeah. put in Cole Meany's character and called him... A gruff Irish man instead. Yeah, and and then called him O'Brien. And we don't have a first name yet, but we will. We will. And hey, O'Brien still makes people swoon. Still he does. does. He does. He does. So O'Brien has evolved from no Brian to O'Brien. To O'Brien, though. yeah. He was. So he, this he is was actually the, the first, first episode. episode. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know this was the first one. So awesome. O'Brien is a is a person, and O'Brien has calibrated the yeah. transporter so that the styrolite seal materializes two microseconds ahead of the child that they're beaming aboard. I don't know why it had to be that like precise. I was like, why don't they just beam up the styrolite first and then beam the kid into the styrolite? Anyways, yeah, I don't know. They make it. Make a whole point that it ha- it's going to be so precise. And so that way they're ensuring there's no possible risk of contamination. Yeah. And they beam this kid up and like, this is not, a- they say it's a 12 year old because Kingsley's like, all right, we've got one 12 year old boy in Styrolite. And they beam up this like clearly not 12 year old. And Worf and LaForge like right away are like, it's a trick. Send him back. And Picard's like, no, no, it's okay. Whatever, whatever's going on here, this kid is still in stasis, so it's okay. And Pulaski starts examining the kid through the styrolite, and Troy says that she can really sense a personality, and this kid is definitely telepathic. Even in stasis. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I think, stasis, but they keep calling it stasis this whole episode. Yeah, I, I say stasis. You say stasis, I say stasis. (laughs) So this is a genetic research facility. So clearly they're making like a new breed of humans, which we will talk about. Well, we could talk about it now. Sure. That's eugenics, right? Yes. And as far as... My like my my understanding of Star Trek is that because of the what's called the eugenics wars, yeah, which is one of the precipitating events around in Star Trek history. There's there's a third world war, yeah, uh, that ends up becoming a nuclear holocaust, and that it is precipitated by uh, basically a group of superhumans who are genetically engineered who try to take over the world. One of whom is Khan, who yep. shows up in the original series and then again in the movies. Khan Noonien Singh. Khan Noonien Singh. But as a result of that war, genetic engineering is outlawed within the Federation. Yeah. And there there are other moral and ethical implications around that as well, which they don't really go into in this episode, but... Not in the slightest. It's actually, like, really uncomfortable. Like, this idea, and they'll talk about it later, that these kids are perfect in every way, which is a very, like, ableist idea. 
that like there is one perfect standard of humanity and yeah it it also feels yeah. to me like like my understanding of evolution and i didn't chat with my sister about this perhaps i should have but my understanding of evolution is like that diversity is a really good thing that like a population is stronger when there is diversity in it evolutionarily and that is not what we see of these kids yeah and pulaski says that they're looking at the future of humanity and picard makes a really good point here he says at least dr kingsley's vision of it yeah which is so true because the reason why and I tried to explain this at the planetarium as well. We were talking about when people were like, oh, I guess is humanity going to go settle on Mars one day or the moon? Right. I don't think people recognize how intrinsically connected we are to the Earth's environment. Mm. Like our our genes are a product of billions of years of evolution on a planet that has the specific gravity that it has and yeah. the atmosphere that it has and and everything like it, we don't even like when we take humans off the planet and put them in space, their bodies start to degenerate like quite quickly. Yeah. And so our our genes have been like our genetics have been have been shaped by the environment that we're in and resulting in what we are. If you're going to start changing those things, it's going to be very much a product of that individual person's decisions as to what should be better about you. Yeah. Yeah. And so if it's just one person's vision of it, that that yeah, like then you begin to shape, you are now shaping that person. It, it, you're going to have all these biases introduced in there and everything. It's And so they don't really touch on this much, but at least Picard makes that point. Yeah, and it's it's an important point. And I'm really glad that line is in there, uh, even if they don't unpack it. Mm-hmm. Because it's it shows that we are not meant to look at what this, what the people on this station what they're doing and think like oh yeah no that's a good thing to try yeah they're not all like oh this is amazing we all want to be like this yeah yeah so pulaski says that the kid's immune system is so advanced that it might not be possible to contract any disease and she wants to remove the styrolite because she's done all the testing she can do and picard says that the risk is too high and they they just argue back and forth and it's not very productive one one comment that picard that pulaski makes which i I do agree with is that the kids can't survive in a lab if their parents all die so you know we do need to figure out if we can safely get them out of there right do they have parents even this is what i was wondering is like by parents does she mean just a bunch of scientists well not just a bunch but like like they, if they've just been created by. Imagine if your parents were were also studying you like lab creatures. I know it's I I my understanding was that the parents were the scientists, they're the scientists, and it wasn't clear to me like because later on she says they're not engineered, they're created, and I was like, mm, is the difference that they were like, I don't know, like what's what's the distinction there? Yeah, Kingsley makes that point, right? She's yeah. like, they're not engineered, they're created, yeah. and I it was almost like. Hey, don't play down my godlike abilities here. I'm not an engineer. I'm a creator. Yeah. Like, whoa. Yeah. But I was also wondering if that's like, are these kids like bred from the existing gene pool on that station? Like basically, were they, are they the scientists offspring? 
I don't know. It's not. I don't know. Clear. So yeah, they don't really mention that. Yeah. They don't. But but basically, yeah, they they're kids. They cannot. They can't just be sealed off in this lab while their parents die. And then, like, what are they going to do? Right. So they argue uh, more. Picard says that she needs to demonstrate that this kid is not going to that that taking the kid out of styrolite is not going to be harmful. And then. It's a little passive aggressive, I think, the way he says, like, oh, I would appreciate it if every once in a while you'd let me finish my sentences. Yes. And I was thinking, like, I don't think he'd ever say that to Dr. Crusher, no matter how often she interrupted him. Hmm. So why with Pulaski? I, I think because he doesn't like her very much. Also, yeah. <laughs> I think he's a little bit afraid of Dr. Crusher. Oh, yeah. In, like, not in a bad way, but like. I think Dr. Crusher can tell him what to do in a way that no one else can, not just because she was chief medical officer, but... Right. They have that history, right? Where he's like, I killed your husband. Yeah, there's that as well. (laughs) He feels responsible for her kid as well. So he's like, I'm not going to want to wrong you. But I don't know. The way he talks to Pulaski isn't great. Although the way she talks to him is also not great. Yeah, so they butt heads, and it's it's because of that that Pulaski seeks out Troy for advice on how to deal with Picard. Yeah. And and Pulaski says to Troy that we just end up quoting regulations at each other and thinks that he's so wrapped up in the dedication to his ship that he can't see the human side of the equation. And then Troy responds by saying that he wouldn't be captain of the flagship if he couldn't see the human side. And points out that maybe they're actually really similar. And and that one of the lines that she uses is that they're both very established personalities. Yeah. I I think that there are I was trying to I was thinking about Pulaski's observation of Picard, and I wondered if there are times where sometimes Picard doesn't see the human side of things. What do you think? Um I don't know. I think I mean I think in this situation he is seeing a human side, but it's not the same human side that she is seeing because he's thinking of his crew and their well-being. And I mean, it's almost like uh, a numbers question or like a, you know, she's thinking of the well-being of the people on Darwin Station and there are two competing interests that are absolutely incompatible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, but but maybe. I don't know. That might be something to keep an eye out for. I think that that was kind of how they tried to write him originally, was that he had less of the human side. But the warmth of Patrick Stewart wouldn't allow that to take hold. Yeah, and I think they, they try to play up the... I don't know. It's... It's hard. I want to call him dispassionate, but he—he he some like especially when it comes to conversations around the prime directive, he has to kind of step back and say, "Listen, I know that our hearts want to do this. They want to be involved. They want to be engaged. They want to feel like we have control and to change things. But sometimes we we have to step back, and so he has to be that sort of cooling pad to yeah. the the passions and and." that sometimes want to, that come from that more human element. And so, and so I think it might be a misunderstanding of his motivations, maybe sometimes. Yeah. And Troy, I think, gets that. Because Troy, Troy can sense that he, when he's connected to the human side of an issue. Right. And I also think that there might be a little bit of this, the idea that like, I remember hearing somewhere, I don't know, maybe this might have been like 
Brene Brown or someone uh, researching like empathy and what kinds of people have more capacity for empathy. And, and it, the findings were that people with stronger boundaries had more capacity for empathy. And so when, when Picard asserts his boundaries in that moment, it might seem like he is not being empathetic, but he's actually thinking bigger picture. Right. Of like yeah. the, the well-being of, of humans, but you know, not just these ones. So. Yeah, the ones, especially the ones that he's been given charge over, which is yeah. which is the ship. Yeah. So Pulaski calls Kingsley and tells her the bad news, and Kingsley is is so upset. She's like, "Please do something." She's like, "I demand, please help us. The children are harmless." And so Pulaski is like, "Okay." She she closes the call and she's like, "I'll stand by. I'll get back to you." Yeah. So she goes down to engineering, and she talks to LaForge and says. I need a completely independent environment, like something I can do to show Picard that it's going to be safe to examine this child. And LaForge says that there's there's just no completely independent environment on the ship, that even with force fields, there's always a risk of contamination unless you were to go out of the ship into a shuttlecraft. Yeah. Yeah. So she's like, okay. Because then you're in space. Yeah. You're, we're not on the ship. We're not sharing air. Right. So she goes to Picard's ready room and he's kind of skeptical of this at first and says that she would still be putting herself at risk. And they interrupt each other again. And then this was really funny because Pulaski catches herself interrupting him, lets him speak, and he says, request approved. And then she, she like launches into an explanation and then realizes that he approved the request and he recognizes yeah. that she's trying to meet her, he, she's trying to meet his requirements. And it, that was just so funny to me because, first of all, that, I don't, this is a thing that happens in television, but I don't think it ever happens in real life unless you're like truly not listening. And like, so right, she clearly yeah. was, she let him speak, but she was not listening to him at all. And I think that might have been part of the problem. My, my darker interpretation of this moment was that she interrupts him again and he's like, fine, go, go, go on the ship and maybe you'll get, we'll get oh, rid no. of you. Oh no. <laughs> Request approved. Fine, <laughs> get out of here. Fine, get yeah. out of here. Uh, uh, I don't think that's what it is. Well, but, yeah, yes. given, given how hard he works to bring her back, I think. Yes. So we go to the shuttle bay. I think this is the first time we've seen like the shuttle bay. We saw, we saw a shuttle before because Troy was, in a shuttle in the episode where um, Armis got got Tasha Yar and killed her. Well, that might be the true. Yeah, I I I forget because all of these things become so common through all yeah. of watching Star Trek. You don't realize when's the first time you see a thing. Like I, it wasn't until we were doing a rewatch that I realized that there's no ten forward through the whole first season. Yeah, we don't, and see that it we don't see it for the first time until season two. So you, yeah, you may very well be right. I yeah. we get a cool shot where when they're leaving the shuttle bay. You get a, a view through the window of like the shuttle bay receding and them heading yeah. into space, and you don't get that very often. No. I think there's only one or two shots like that. Yeah, uh, this shuttle is the Sakharov. I noticed. Okay. I believe it must be named after Andrei Dmitrovich Sakharov, who was a Soviet nuclear physicist, uh, dissident, Nobel laureate, and activist for disarmament, peace, and human rights. Uh, this is according to to wikipedia and he uh this was like a long time ago in like the 40s and so yeah another i don't know i just thought it was cool i saw sakura that's awesome Thank, thanks for looking that up that's cool yeah yeah you always wonder where the names for the shuttlecraft 
come and from and, and some of them yeah. on the ships and stuff so i this one i had i did not know so yeah. that's cool yeah so data is piloting the shuttlecraft and it's really funny because he like double checks he's like so did pulaski or so did picard approve this and pulaski doesn't really answer which like made me wonder like are we gonna find out that <laughs> he didn't want he wanted pulaski to go on her own or he didn't want data to go and that amounts to absolutely nothing but Data asks, like, well, what if it turns out that the the kid is not harmless? And Pulaski, like, makes this point that she's made a billion times before, that Data is a machine and he's going to be perfectly safe. And, and he's kind of like, well, that's actually not true necessarily, but I wasn't asking about myself. I was asking about you. Right. And she kind of catches herself because she realizes that she didn't even grant Data the possibility that he was being empathetic and concerned about her. Yeah. Yeah. So they beam this kid onto the shuttlecraft and Pulaski removes the the styrolite and the Yeah, kid... like dissolves like with like an energy beam. Yeah. That's cool. And so the kid sits up and he's got like just his boxers on. Yes. Which I thought was weird. And he's also like, yeah, this is definitely not a 12-year-old. No. Uh, this So this this child is played by an actor named George Baxter Holder. And I met them. So I met, uh, who's a doctor. This is Dr. Well, not at this time, but I don't think. But this is this is will be Dr. George Baxter Holder. And I met uh, George at the Las Vegas Star Trek convention in 2015. And we were interviewing people there when I was working on our film, Chasing Atlantis. And he's one of the interviewees in our film. And he's also written a book called Drugs, Food, Sex, and God. An addicted drug dealer goes from convict to doctor through the power of intention. And it's actually a really good book. And George is pretty open about his experiences with addiction and then turning his life around. And in the book, he talks about his experience of being on Star Trek. Oh. And how, like, it was one of the catalyzing forces for wanting to change his life around because the cast and crew on the show were, like, so kind to him and showed him, like, oh. so much love and care and stuff. Nice. Uh, it's not a huge part of the book, was is his time in Star Trek, but it is it is there. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and so uh, one, it was one of my favorite interviews that we did during Chasing Atlantis. Uh, George is, like, very open and, and just shared a lot about, like, his life, probably because this book is out in the public, so his, you know, his life is literally, like, an open book for people yeah. to read. And we talked about the inspiration of the stars and space, and I remember at some point he mentioned, like, you know, so as the beauty is up in the universe, like, so it is below on, on the earth. And we were both, like, crying, <laughs> like, emotional oh, wow. and stuff. So, but it was really cool. He, he was a, he's an awesome person, and... Uh, I was glad that we got to have this, like, uh, interaction with each other. And I'd recommend that people go check out uh, Dr. George Baxter Holder's book because it it's a quick read and it was uh, it's a really cool story of a person's life. Nice. Yeah. I, hearing that the cast of TNG, like, hearing about how kind they are always makes me, like, feel so good. Yeah, it, it puts like a certain sincerity on the show itself, yeah. knowing that there are people that people that this isn't just like a product that's yeah. pushed on people like me who are emotional or whatever. It's yeah. like that there's like genuine sincerity behind it that the writers and the cast like they believe in these values. And that's why I'm always so inspired when you find out like when you see the actors themselves being vocal about um you know, injustices and wanting to make the world better and 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 that they actually buy into this idea that Star Trek 
does try to lead us toward being better in the present. Yeah. 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 Nice. So on the bridge, Picard is worried. Uh, It's been 18 minutes that Pulaski has been with this kid in this enclosed space. Um, I would like to point out that she's not even wearing, like, a mask. So. (laughs) Yeah. I thought that, like... At least put on like a suit or yeah, something, like an wear, isolation like, suit. Yeah, he could be out out of the styrolite, but she could be in like a yeah, in like PPE, basically. Yeah, basically something. But yeah, she's not wearing any. I found that strange too. I was like, well, at the very least, she'd be like, we have those kinds of suits now. Yeah, never mind in the twenty fourth century. Yeah, but I guess they're not not as good on television. Uh, no. So then, on the shuttlecraft, Data is examining Pulaski, and she makes a comment about his bedside manner. And then gets this, like, sharp arthritic pain. She, like, grabs her elbow and shrieks in pain. And and we go to a dramatic commercial break. And when we come back, she tells Picard that she has the first symptom. She's got yeah. acute arthritic inflammation. And turns out the kids are carriers. And this kid will need to be returned to Darwin Station. Yeah, and Pulaski tells the the child that it you know it wasn't his fault. There's no he has no dialogue. It's all telepathic. Yeah. So uh, she's he's been communicating with her telepathically, and she can understand him uh, because this is one of the abilities that these these engineered or created, created people thing. have. And O'Brien beams him back down to the planet. So Pulaski says that now she is going to also have to join the quarantine at Darwin Station, and she won't make herself an exception to the quarantine. Yeah. So they they fly the shuttle uh, to to Gagarin Four, and then in the observation lounge, Picard says the priority is now Pulaski and Data's safe return, and he acknowledges that this is linked to yes uh, the the what they you know the, the work on or helping the people on Gagarin Four, but his priority is Pulaski and Data, and this is interesting. Troy says that Pulaski should be involved in this, and she says. Well, yes. we can bring them, we can, Data's probably fine, and Pulaski, well, the transporter's biofilter will will filter out any anything, and O'Brien says, no, it won't, because the kid was transported twice before he infected Pulaski, which is true. Right. Um, but it was interesting to me, because, like, even if they can't bring Pulaski on board, they could still involve her more in, you know, before or later on, they start, like, rifling through her quarters. They could have let her know yeah. they were going to do that. Like, hey, can we go in your quarters and stuff? She's like, no, actually. You, yeah, you I'll tell you, you where my hairbrush is. You don't have to look in my underwear drawer. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that, yeah, they make a whole dramatic point of having to find, like, because they got to find the tissue samples yeah. later. And she's like, well, I could just tell you where you're going to find stuff. Anyways. Yeah. So um, O'Brien suggests maybe they use an old transporter trace of Pulaski. So basically, like, an old pattern. It reminded me of, like, a, like a backup a episode. Point. Pardon? The, the the Picard as a floating P episode oh. where they have to like oh, yeah where, yeah where was... he puts yeah where they have to like beam him back from space but they make his and it's like this what they have I know and and I know they make it seem like it's difficult to do so as if like this isn't a regular thing but at some point yeah we'll get into it but this is the second <laughs> time they use a transporter in like a show breaking way yeah and I'm like whatever we'll just roll with it but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Riker, Riker points out that they don't have an old transporter scan of Pulaski because she's never used the transporter on the ship, which is kind of a throwback to McCoy. Yeah. Because 
McCoy doesn't like using the transporter. And in fact, when they that's like the first way they reintroduce his character right. when he comes back for Star Trek the Motion Picture. When they've brought the series back in movie form now, the first like the first thing they say is that there's this this Starfleet officer who absolutely refuses to take the transporter. And that's supposed to be you knowing that it's yeah. McCoy. And it McCoy happens like it happens on TNG in the first episode as well, when they're like, Well, there's right. this old ambassador or admiral, I can't remember. They're like when they're like he came on a shuttle and like well he doesn't like the transporter and then that's how you know right. it's McCoy yeah yeah scatters molecules across space no thank so you. they try to get the la- though so because they don't have a scan of her on the Enterprise they try to get one from the last ship that they served on which is the Repulse so they reach out to the Repulse to try to get that and meanwhile back on Darwin Station Kingsley apologizes. Um, she feels really badly now, of course, yeah. that Pulaski is infected. But Pulaski says, well, it's okay. I I chose this. And she is now visually aged. Like, she has got, like, more old people makeup yes. on. And they've tried to make her look, like, older. Yes. Uh, Kingsley says that she still can't believe. And she, she looks really skeptical. She's like, there's no way that this kid actually happened. Like, that, that this kid is actually who infected you. Um, and she says... They were designed to resist disease. And at this point, I noticed that she was wearing gloves and all of them were wearing gloves, but they were wearing them like all the time, which I feel defeats the purpose of wearing gloves. That's that's to show to you as a visual cue that they're sciencey people. <laughs> they have sciencey gloves on. They do they science. Have gloves on. They'll shake your hand with their gloves on. They'll probably eat their yep. lunch with their gloves on. With gloves on. They got gloves on. They're sciencey gloves. Yeah. Uh, so Kingsley shows Data and and Pulaski the children. So they they're they've now gone to like see the children in isolation. The the previous child who's beamed down is still part of that group as well. Yeah. They all look older than they apparently are. Yeah. She says the oldest is twelve. The oldest is twelve. So that we've just seen the oldest of all the child the children. So yeah, and, and they're them. definitely played by like old teenagers or young adults. Right. And she says this is the point where she makes that she makes that statement that they were created, not engineered, and that they are quote unquote. Perfect in every way, body structure, musculature, and mindset. And that is really creepy. Yes. Because what definition of perfect are you talking about? Yeah. And our own society, a couple times over, twice at least, you know, very clearly in Star Trek, uh, when you have a group of people who starts claiming their genetic superiority, it's really bad. That's a bad thing to have happened. Yeah. Like bad things happen as a result of I that. I mean, it's happened in this world on multiple occasions, and the results yep. are never good. Yeah, and it's happened in Star Trek history as well. Yeah. So it's so weird that they barely address it in this episode. I guess their, yeah, their priorities are elsewhere, but like maybe it would have been interesting to have some like, and by the way, they're not going to do any more genetic creating or, you know, like it's just weird. Yeah, and I don't, I, I, I was thinking about the episode and I was trying to figure out if they were trying to do like an analogy, like a parallel between, in terms of the aging. Yeah. Like this is, this is what we will do to prevent age kind of thing. And then the irony is that it, it makes everyone else age more quickly or something. Mm. But it, the anal- I don't think it works. The analogy kind of falls apart because the kids actually look older than they, they are anyway. So It's also weird to me that that's a good thing, like... I don't know. Yeah, that, oh, it's like they look mature at 12. Like, that's also kind of creepy. Anyways, so, and again, I don't know where this fits into the Star Trek lore or canon in terms of of the the outlawing of of eugenics and and that kind of thing. But so the kids also have telekinesis. They're like playing chess with their minds and moving the pieces around with their minds and stuff. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Anyways, Kingsley (laughs) says that the kids have an aggressive immunity 
and that none of them was infected by the Lantry. So Pulaski's like, okay, wait a second. How would their immune system, they have this, because they've mentioned this advanced immune system a couple times now. How would it react to the Thalusian flu, which is one of the officers had from the Lantry when they arrived? And so Kingsley says it would seek out an airborne virus and destroy it. So your body is like an aircraft carrier of antibodies. So rather than waiting for the disease to enter your body, the children have an immune system that literally like sends clouds of antibodies into the air <laughs> to fight viri, uh, which I guess is probably what your sister touched on uh, in the interview. Yeah, session. no, we did talk about this. And so I won't get into it a lot now, but uh, that's not necessarily a good thing. No, it's no, and it's not in this episode. <laughs> no. So, but basically the antibody would alter the genetic code of the virus. So Pulaski tells Data to do a genetic analysis of the interaction between the Salusian flu and the children. And here's where we see that like, oh, maybe she's warming up to Data right. because Kingsley's like, no, we don't have time for a genetic analysis. That can take months and, and, uh, Pulaski's like, no, no, it's okay. Like, Data has a way with computers. Like, he can do it in five seconds. It's okay. Yeah. So, handy to have around Data. Yeah. In the ready room, the Repulse's captain tells Picard that they erased Pulaski's transporter pattern when she left the ship. Well, that made sense to me because transporter patterns probably, like, you're, you're the record of the scan of the molecule, like, the molecules of your whole body. That's got to be, like, a huge file. You know, and every once in a while, they'd probably be like, hey, listen, we got to free up some hard drive space. Yeah, because one day you might have a sentient holodeck character. Or yeah, exactly. Might yeah, something. Their personality or. Yeah, you always need extra drive space. So they they hit that like red line on their drive when Windows yeah. like, listen, you're, you're. And so they're like, well, what can we do? Let's delete Pulaski's transporter pattern. We don't need that anymore. Yeah. So Taggart says that. He wanted to keep her. He, and so this also comes up like, in a yeah. conversation. He's like, yeah, it's, it's too bad that she wanted to leave because I wanted to keep her on board. And Picard's like, he's really? <laughs> he's shocked that anyone would want to keep her. And he's like, well, why did you Why did you let her go then? And, and it turns out that Pulaski really wanted to work on the Enterprise and was really intimately familiar with Picard's service record and was a big fan of his. And he's kind of like, stunned <laughs> yeah and I, I honestly that struck me as really like kind of sad like imagine you have this opportunity to work with someone whose work you have admired for like yeah, don't be your heroes Ruthie long time yeah and then you start working <laughs> yeah. with them and they're so mean to you you just don't yeah, get so along mean to you. at all and, oh, but man. she doesn't and I I actually kind of had new respect for Pulaski in this because she never like she never lets that out at no, any point. Like no. she, re she maintains that professionalism. So she's never like, "Hey, you hurt my feelings. I used to look up to you." Like there's none of that stuff. Like no, she, she just no. does her job, and she doesn't really care if Picard agrees with her or not. She's going to do her job. So, yeah. but Picard has this new insight now yeah. into their their dynamic and and to Pulaski. Yeah. So down on Darwin Station, uh, Data has discovered that the Lantry was not the source of the disease; it was the trigger. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. So what happened was the active immune system set out to attack the Thalusian flu virus, but then it didn't stop and it ended up altering the genetic makeup of humans. And since DNA is self-replicating, the process is irreversible. So now let's let's go into because this is mostly this is this is a big part of what I talked about with with Jake, with my sister. So let's go into that and then we'll we'll catch you afterwards. All right, Science Talks, brought to you by With the First Link. Yeah. 
So I'm here now with my sister, Jake Samoshi, uh, who is a bioinformatician and biostatistician, and who also is a big fan of Star Trek. And we are going to talk a little bit about some of the science in this episode together. Before we do that, Jake, I think I was around when you started watching Star Trek, because I think that was when I started watching Star Trek, but I was very young. So to start off, can you tell us, me and Matt and the listeners, a little bit about your history with Star Trek, your relationship with Star Trek? Yeah, I mean, I don't really remember a time when we didn't watch Star Trek. The first episode aired in 1987, so I would have been four. So I don't really know when we started watching. I remember when we were kids, it was the only TV show our parents had any interest in watching. We would watch Star Trek together as a family, and, like, you couldn't get them to watch, especially our dad, but you couldn't get either of them, really, to watch television, any other television, for any reason. But every week, we would watch Star Trek together uh, when we were little. I remember that. As we got a little older... Um, we kept watching it and I think they kind of stopped, but Star Trek was just always there. I I don't, yeah, I don't remember a time when there was no Star Trek. Yeah, okay, fair enough. That sounds very similar to my memory and my history with, with Star Trek. What about now? Do you still watch it? Do you, do you still like it? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that I probably watch it less than you do at this point. I don't, like, go back and rewatch it much. I'm kind of low-key rewatching DS9, but I'm taking it very slowly. Like, I'll, you know, go for months without watching any and then, like, pick up an episode and, and sort of get back into it for a little while and then drift away again. Yeah, I have very fond memories of Star Trek. I'll still go and, like, it's the only... Star Trek movies are the only movies that I'll bother to go see in theater. Um, cause that's something of a family tradition, but it's not like a regular thing that I rewatch. You did recently make me start watching Lower Decks, which is great. Yes, I did. And it's, it's really like true to the original spirit of Star Trek in a way that I feel like the more recent movies are not. But yeah, I mean, I still like it. I would still consider myself a fan, but it's not like a huge part of my life anymore. All right. Fair enough. Okay. So thank you for telling us a little bit about your your relationship with Trek. Are you a scientist? Is that is that a, a correct label to use for what you do? Um, I would say yes with some caveats. I certainly participate in the work of science. Science is a multi-step process that involves identifying uh, a gap in current state of knowledge, coming up with a question, basically thinking about how you would bring evidence to bear on that question, designing an experiment or a set of like a system of observation that would gather that evidence, writing it down. There's a lot of tedious work involved in sort of cleaning it up once you've written it down, Um, doing statistical analysis on it, sometimes not always. And then the final step of writing down what you did and what you learned from it. And I am, I don't do all of those steps. A lot of people are kind of involved in all of those steps. I typically do the cleaning up the data step 
and the statistical analysis step and a little bit of the writing down what you did and what you learned. And sometimes I'm involved in designing experiments as well, but I don't run experiments, I don't gather data, and I don't spend a lot of time deciding what questions to answer. So yes, I'm a scientist, but I'm not involved in all the steps of the process most of the time. Okay, that's good to know. Thank you for that clarification, that's helpful. So let's now talk about this episode. Uh, the main reason that I wanted to talk to you and interview you, do our very first interview on this <laughs> on this podcast, uh, was that as I was watching, I got to the part where they talk about how this virus, I guess, has developed in uh, the characters' bodies. And what happened was the children of the at, at the Darwin station, they have this immune system that instead of waiting for the body to be attacked by a pathogen, it finds pathogens around them and and destroys them. But then what ended up happening was in destroying that pathogen, in this case, it was the Thalusian flu, it then or the, the anti it then made antibodies which reprogrammed the DNA of the people with that pathogen and then the people around them in a sort of airborne way. And I know that start that the science on Star Trek is not always the same as the science in the world that we live in right now. Like we don't travel at faster than light speed. We don't have any sort of universal translator. There's a, there's a lot on Star Trek that that we, you know, I I don't expect it to be like my my science education, but what it piqued my interest because over the last, I don't know, year and a half, we've been hearing a lot about antibodies and maybe not DNA, but RNA, and one big piece of misinformation that went out around various COVID vaccines that deal with RNA or mRNA was that they're going to reprogram your DNA. And I don't want to entertain that at all. I'm not going to ask you if that's true because I know it's not. So <laughs> don't worry about that. But I just, I it was interesting to me to see this on a show that came out many, many years before we were talking about mRNA vaccines, or at least before I'd heard of mRNA vaccines. So can you first maybe just briefly explain how DNA works? Yes. So DNA is a substance that is found in almost all living things. The only exception is some viruses. But so people are familiar with some of the sort of types of molecules that you find in living things, right? You have carbohydrates, you have proteins, you have fats, and you know some things about them. You know that, for example, fats are for energy storage, right? DNA is another type of molecule that is found in your body that your body is made of, and its job is information storage. So a molecule of DNA is, you can think of it like a ladder, and each rung on the ladder is one letter from a four-letter alphabet. And all of those letters, billions and billions of letters in order, carry all of the information required to make more of your cells to do all the things that your body does. That's what DNA is. So each DNA molecule contains the information for all of the cells in your body? So this 
varies from organism to organism. In humans, we have 46 chromosomes, and each chromosome is one molecule. And all of them together contain all the information for all the cells for your whole body. And does every single person have 46 chromosomes? There are some situations where a person will have an additional copy, usually not of a whole chromosome, but of a part of a chromosome. That's called the trisomy. So the example that people uh, are most likely to know of is Down syndrome is a trisomy. I think it is a trisomy of the 21st chromosome. I would have to check that. So yeah. Oh, okay. and I should say sometimes people have more or fewer, particularly with the sex chromosomes. You can have people who have 2X and 1Y or 2Y and 1X or 1X and nothing else um, in the sex chromosomes. That also happens sometimes. Okay. I I suppose I should have asked you this before or, or stated this before. Do you work with DNA? I know you know a lot about it, but do you work with DNA? So I don't work with DNA physically, but I work with DNA sequences, mostly in bacteria, not in uh, plants or animals, although sometimes plants and animals. But I work with, so we have lots of different technologies now to read the sequence of that DNA molecule to find out what the letters on the ladder are. And that gives us lots of information about what's going on in a sample or an organism or whatever. And so a lot of my work has to do with interpreting and understanding what's going on with DNA sequences once we've used fancy machines to read them. Okay. Okay. So is it possible, theoretically even, is it, is it possible for antibodies to reprogram DNA? Is this a like a thing that it's at all based in a potential reality? <sighs> possible feels like a really strong word to say no to. Um, <laughs> it's Has not, it ever been observed? It's not what antibodies do. Okay. Antibodies attach to something and then there are cells in your immune system that recognize the antibody and know that they should destroy the things that the antibody is attached to. That's an antibody's job, is to attach to something and thereby flag it for destruction. Antibodies can attach to DNA. That is a thing. And I, I looked this up a little bit. The only example of DNA of antibodies that attach to DNA that I could find was autoimmune situations. So um, it's one of the things that happens in lupus is that people's antibodies attach to their own DNA and then their own immune system destroys their own cells. I didn't, in a very cursory Google search, I didn't find any examples of antibodies that attach to like foreign invading DNA. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. If an antibody attached to DNA, I guess it's possible that it could cause mutation, but it's not, it wouldn't matter because that DNA wouldn't be functional with an antibody stuck to it anyway. Ah, interesting. Okay. 
And so so when when people say reprogram DNA is what they're talking about then mutation. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. lots of things can reprogram DNA. Mutation happens all the time. Sometimes it happens through like radiation damage or oxidative damage. Uh, this is why antioxidants are good for you. There are certain kinds of molecules called oxidants that really like to react with all the things around them. And if they like encounter a piece of DNA, they can cause a mutation by just like reacting with it. And antioxidants go and like gobble all the oxidants up before that happens. That's why those are good for you. Yeah, so, so things can cause DNA damage by accident, like the sun, certain chemicals, toxins, whatever. And we can also do it on purpose. So this is a real and legitimate form of medical therapy called gene therapy, where we insert, I think usually with a virus, a chunk of DNA that is similar to DNA that the person has, but is improved in some way. If a person has a deleterious mutation, if they are unwell because of something in their DNA, we can sort of replace that chunk of DNA, not in all of their cells, but in some of their cells with a different, a slightly different version that, that doesn't cause the problem. Um, yeah, so reprogramming DNA is pretty easy to do in a lab or just producing DNA with whatever sequence you like is pretty easy to do in a lab. Repro reprogramming DNA in a living, like human, is a much more complicated task. It's hard, but it is, um, there are some, some therapies that exist that do that. Okay. Not in an airborne way, generally, yes? <sighs> well, there, this this episode had a lot less nonsense than I expected, honestly. Like, okay, fair enough. The, 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 basic, the basic thing, right? The idea that transposing two base pairs, two of the rungs in that ladder, would cause all of the aging symptoms. That is nonsense. That is okay. absolutely... We can talk it. We can talk about why that's nonsense if you want to. But, like... Antibodies would not do what they did. Uh, but if right. you had, like, we usually deliver gene therapy, I think, with a virus. So if you had an airborne virus and you were using it to deliver gene therapy, this is not my area of expertise. There are probably reasons why that wouldn't work. But I would put that in the realm of science fiction, not in the realm of nonsense. Okay. Having it done by an antibody, that's nonsense. Okay. Okay, that's good to know. So now moving away from DNA a little bit, what do you think about the ways that these children's uh, immune systems work? So this idea is that rather than waiting, I, I mentioned this, rather than waiting for the pathogen to attack them, their immune systems seek them out. And maybe at this point, putting aside, you know, is this a possible thing or would this work? Is this a good, would this be a good thing? Would that make us stronger, healthier, more able to withstand various things? So the idea that antibodies or that an immune system in general could somehow detect and attack things that have not yet come in contact with the body, that's pure science fiction. Um, I don't want to okay. say it's nonsense, but I'm going to say that is not something for which any kind of technology exists. And I can't imagine how that would work. 
making immune systems more aggressive. This is what was sort of interesting to me in the show is that they kept talking about making immune systems more aggressive as if that was a good thing. And that is absolutely not the case. Immune systems walk a very fine line where they need to be able to identify and destroy things that are dangerous, whether that's pathogens like viruses or bacteria or cells in your own body that have gone wrong, cancer cells, etc. So they need to be able to identify and destroy things that are dangerous, but not destroy the parts of your body that are just parts of your body, right? That's autoimmunity. That is also a disease state. So making an immune system more aggressive basically always ends in disaster for the person whose immune system that is. That is not a good thing to have. And the thing that I found most implausible about this was the idea that a person who was an expert in immunology could possibly think that that would be a good thing to do. <laughs> Is it... Now, I, I, I'm quite... I, I, I'm very willing to believe that, that the people writing this episode were not experts in immunology. Is it possible that this particular immunologist or scientist had just a different meaning of the word aggressive? Maybe. I mean, if what they mean by it is it does this magical leaping outside the body thing, then sure, I guess. But I don't. Like, there are so many things that are not in your body that your immune system would react to if they were in your body. But it's fine because they're not. Like, I don't understand how this is functional. Right. right. So it's like the immune system needs to not only know how to find these things outside of your body, but also know whether or not they would enter your body. Right. And like, imagine, like, imagine cleaning a toilet with an immune system like this, right? Or walking <laughs> around on dirt. Like, the right. world is full of bacteria and viruses that you don't want in your body, <laughs> and your skin is your main defense against them. Right. All right. Fair enough. Okay, what are your thoughts? So at the end of the episode, there's this voiceover, and Pulaski says, among other things, Scientists believe no experiment is a failure, that even a mistake advances the evolution of understanding. Do you agree? Um, I would say that there are lots of examples in history of scientific discoveries that happened by accident. They were not what people were looking for, but something unexpected happened and they followed that that sort of new path that opened up and they found something super cool. That is really common. But also really common is you try to do something, it doesn't work, and nothing happens except you kind of have to try again. Is that, though, I remember hearing someone, I think it was a linguist or someone, because our mother is a linguist, uh, saying something about, like, as long as you reduce something to like a previously known question like if you ask a question and you don't really get the answer but you're like oh that's kind of like this I don't know if I'm explaining this well yeah no I think I understand what you mean um so if you or like of, even if you try something is... and it turns out nothing happens and at least you found out oh well if I do that nothing happens well no a lot of the time you try something and it turns out nothing happens because like the temperature was wrong right or be, like oh you, I see you just like 
Like, you tried to get this DNA to go inside this bacteria, and it just, like, didn't. You have to do it again. <laughs> right? This is, like, the work of everyday science. Is like, sometimes you just try to do a thing, and it doesn't work. I would say that if the experiment succeeds in the sense that you sort of manage to do all the physical tasks that you were trying to do, then it will yields it will yield information. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think that's what, what she's talking about here, is that these people were trying to design some, like, super race of people, which has uncomfortable which, implications. Yeah, no, but um, sounds like eugenics to me. <laughs> but they were trying to design a super race of people, and they didn't manage to do that. But boy, did they learn some stuff about the immune system. <laughs> and I... I think that that's what she's saying here. And I do agree. I'm not convinced that the cost is worth it when we're talking about human lives like this. But I do agree that a lot of the time you do learn something, even if you right. didn't get where you were trying to go. Okay. And and I think I I would like to maybe just highlight that distinction that you're making about the cost that just because you learn something. I mean, there are a lot of, in history, there are a lot of experiments done on unconsenting humans. And yeah, we we have a lot of knowledge from that, but that doesn't mean that was the right thing to do, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Do you think, now this is getting, I know, farther from your specific area of expertise and perhaps more into my English teacher area of expertise. Do you think science fiction or fiction more generally, do you think it has any sort of responsibility or do writers and storytellers have any kind of responsibility to adhere to some kind of truth? Obviously, I'm not watching Star Trek thinking I'm getting like a science lesson, but what what do you think about that? Um, my first instinct is to say no, that I think that if you want to tell a story, you can make up whatever universe you want to tell that story in and make up whatever rules in that universe. Um, where I want to temper that is if you are making up rules in your universe that support sort of harmful misunderstandings or misinformation that exist in the real world, that is dangerous. Right? So a fiction story where um, vaccines cause autism because that's how it works in their universe, I would, I would say that is irresponsible and that is doing harm. But a fiction story where aging is magically tri- triggered by two single nucleotide polymorphisms, you know, it's not like anyone's out there saying that that happens, right? It's not like there are people who are being harmed by that belief. So well, they're not at the time, but now there are people saying that antibodies reprogram DNA. So they're not saying that actually. They're saying that mRNA reprograms DNA, which is if actually I think less possible. Okay. Well, I mean it's certainly not possible uh, in a human body. Yeah, they're both nonsense, but it's slightly different nonsense. It's, I'm pretty sure that the, that the anti-vax nonsense is that mRNA reprograms your DNA, which it doesn't. That's just false. Yeah. This is, yeah, antibodies reprogram your DNA, which again, they don't. That's just false. Right. Okay. 
Like, I think if you try to limit your stories, I think you do have a responsibility not to support existing harmful narratives. But if you try to limit a science fiction story to only concepts that nobody could ever possibly build a conspiracy theory out of, then you never get to write a work of fiction again. Right, right. Okay, I'll allow that. <laughs> Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you, you want to say that you think listeners should know about or any thoughts you want to share on the episode more generally? I don't think so. I've... There's a lot of scientific nonsense in this episode that you didn't ask me about that your listeners probably don't care about. But I just want to say for the record that your hair cannot turn gray overnight. I was actually wondering about that. Yeah. No, not wondering. I was I was going to say that because like your hair grows gray, right? Like yeah. it doesn't just all the of hair a that is already out of out of your scalp will not change color as a result <laughs> of anything that happens in your DNA. Like. And also skin becoming wrinkled. Yeah, like, yeah, I guess. That's another, like, these cells replace themselves with new versions that get more wrinkled over time. And that takes time. So yeah. that part of it was really nonsense. Unless the thing that this virus does is make your cells reproduce that much faster. So that your hair just like grows really, really fast. And then I well, suppose then you would expect Pulaski like to have down, long hair. Then their hair would be yeah, long. Yeah. Like, yeah, I guess. All right. No. Like, but the stuff about aging isn't just, oh, it's science fiction. It's like warp speed. We don't know how they did. Like, that violates everything we currently know <laughs> about how aging works. Right. I want to be clear that I'm not like mad at this episode of Star Trek. I want your your listeners to understand right. that I think it is okay yeah. <laughs> for Star Trek to do scientific nonsense. Um, sure. It's still fun. I still like the show. I'm not here saying Star Trek sucks because their science sucks. I'm here saying Star Trek is a great show and like don't learn your biology from them. Just, just watch it for Star Trek. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. That's fair. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about DNA and Star Trek and Pulaski. What do you think of Pulaski? I think Pulaski, it's, it's sort of interesting. So when I was younger, I didn't like Pulaski because she wasn't Beverly Crusher and I wanted Beverly Crusher back. And then I got a little older and I was like, okay, Pulaski gets a bad rap. Like people mostly just don't like her because... She's not, like, sort of warm and cuddly, and she's a middle-aged woman, and, you know, people don't like her because she's not in that, like, attractiveness, like, you know, yeah, yeah, that's not the thing she's doing. And then, recently listening to your podcast, to the previous episodes of your podcast, I'm like, Pulaski's kind of mean to Data, though. Like, often, and really in ways that are totally uncalled for. Just, like, going out of her way to dehumanize him repeatedly. I don't think that the reasons that people disliked Pulaski... I think there are lots of bad reasons to dislike Pulaski. But I think she could be nicer to Data in particular. All right. Yeah, that's fair. That's how I feel. 
But I also think they were trying they were trying to write her like it was the 80s and they were trying to write her as like I think she like occupies this conceptual space of like a woman who has had to be really stubborn and hard to get to a certain level of achievement in spite of obstacles that are in her way and I'm sure that the Star Trek universe would like us to imagine that there is no sexism and you know in the 24th century or whatever um but i think she sort of occupies that archetype that reflected a real thing that that really existed in the 80s and continues to exist today that like that's a good point yeah it's hard for women to be nice i mean it's hard for women to make progress in their careers whether they're nice or not and this is one response to that yeah yeah all right. Well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your knowledge with us. <laughs> Anytime. All right. All right. All right. See you later. See ya. So we're back on the bridge after our sciency chat. Pulaski yeah. is on the view screen and is aged uh, even more. I also thought that was just funny that we have the like um, old person voice. Yeah, that actors her. put on when they're when they have to be old, like the admiral did that the first season too. Mark we, we have that. Yeah, where he's like, is it like, yeah. There are elderly people that don't sound like, that. <laughs> you know, like it's like oh, I guess I have to talk in old voice. I need to really sound convincingly old. So she's like, she's like, I last log of yeah. uh, chief medical officer Pulaski. Yeah. So, anyways. Yeah. One another thing that um Jake and I talked about this a little bit, but I just want to note it. Like everyone's hair is like white. Like that's mm-hmm. not how aging like white really white happens. white because like when when your hair goes gray it's not that it like turns gray it, like it grows in gray so like your hair's not just gonna so, so turn right. white when you age but so they what they should have had is like really white roots yeah in their hair yeah, yeah, yeah. Is what it have. <laughs> that would look really weird I think it's probably for the best just sort of aesthetically that they went with this choice yeah yeah we have to identify to the audience that these are just old, old people now yeah uh, so so basically Pulaski wants. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so so she said that, she explains what happened and also that the enclosed environment of the shuttlecraft concentrated her exposure. So she oh, no. she got infected faster, which is a real thing that happens. So let's, everyone just keep that in mind. Yeah, that's why- For airborne there's viruses. A lot of airborne viruses, yeah. There's a lot of criticism that for all the discussion we had around COVID transmission, that part of it wasn't, like, how do we upgrade buildings to ensure that they have good ventilation? Yes, the shuttlecraft yeah, that, can't there, there have good infrastructure changes. It's in no. a vacuum, but still. It's in a vacuum, yeah. Yeah. So it's concentrated her exposure. So Pulaski does, or Picard wants to beam Pulaski up in suspended animation, but Pulaski says she's like, she's already acted with, an, with already, like already we've made too many decisions without enough information and that she won't risk yeah. uh, anyone else. But the, Picard now is like, you know, in the past, we, we didn't want the children on the ship. They could be a risk or whatever, but now he wants his medical officer back. Yeah. And he's like, now, in a way, he is acting from that human capacity that yeah. we said earlier that, yeah. that she was worried that he couldn't. He's like, no, I want you back. Yeah. And so she's like, no, it's okay. So she records her final log right yeah. there in front of them. And so <laughs> she says, uh, it's kind of sad. Yeah. So she's like, uh, an attempt to control, an attempt to control human <laughs> evolution uh, has resulted in a new species that's lethal to its predecessors. So it's like, they... It's like their immune systems are like, you guys are previous humans. You guys suck. We're going to actually yeah, kill you off. Yeah. Um, 
the children will be condemned to live out their lives in isolation. Like, yeah. And then, so their life is going to be terrible now as well, unless they enjoy sitting around just playing like floaty chess with their brains. Yeah. And the quarantine of the Darwin station must be maintained forever. Yeah. It's, it yeah, it is very, uh, very rough. And on the Darwin station, uh, Data sort of prepares to leave. He expresses his condolences, but Pulaski's very gruff with him and, she, she thanks him for everything that he did. And then she says, as androids go, you're in a class by yourself. And like, I can tell this is her trying to be nice, but for crying she out tried loud, so like, hard. Just, just stop saying that he's an android. Stop repeating that. Stop focusing on that. Like, Yeah. And also it's like, it's not really a compliment. Because it's more of like just a statement of fact. Yeah, yeah exactly. As far yeah, as they know. In a, in a class, it's just him and Laura, as far as they know. <laughs> Yeah, like, like pretty much the only sentient androids. I mean, she might as well just been like, as androids go, you're the only android like you. Yeah, as androids like, go, yeah, I you guess. are wearing a yellow <laughs> uniform. Like, it's not, yeah. this is not a, and it's also, I mean, that kind of underhanded compliment is never like, oh, you're not like other whatevers, right? Like, it's not, Yeah, it's not very nice anyway. No, it's not. So there's also, I, I liked this moment in the transporter room where uh, Picard meets Data. So so O'Brien and the other transporter operator beam him up and they say there's nothing, you know, there's no bio- biological organisms attached to him, so he's safe. And Picard, like, immediately starts talking to him to try to find a solution and then, like, pauses and says, it's good to see you again. <laughs> and Data's like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like there's an opposite dynamic, right, where he's like, where Picard does see Data as, like, a fully acknowledged human sentient being so yeah yeah. so basically picard is like if it were possible he's like i understand it's not possible to reverse this process but if it were possible then would pulaski be back to normal and i like that data said as normal as ever being like well you know she might still be sort of bigoted (laughs) about androids but as normal as yeah it's his way of getting a dig back in finally yeah yeah and so picard because they don't have the trace from the transporter so Picard wants to use a sample of DNA from before she was exposed to this rapid geriatric phenomenon. Uh, right. And so Orion's like, yeah, I think I can do that. So yeah, so this is when Riker and Data, first they start going through Pulaski's medical logs, but the records were transported via Starfleet headquarters, which is on Earth. So I guess it's taking them longer so that they don't have any like blood samples or anything like that. Right. So then they go to her quarters and they're looking for like a fingernail or anything. And then they finally go like get her hairbrush and find a hair with a follicle. So it's got a live cell. Right. And Picard tells Pulaski, this is what we're going to do. And Pulaski says, actually, this was interesting. Pulaski says, if, if I live through this, I'll have a much better understanding of geriatrics. And I was thinking that, like, I mean, there there are a lot of things that doctors don't have a good understanding of because they haven't experienced them. Right, yeah. Because people probably, you know, people who experience certain things might not have the opportunities to, maybe people who experience uh, systemic oppression might be less likely to become doctors because they don't have those opportunities. But I was thinking, like, yeah, probably most doctors aren't super old when they are doctors. So that's really hard. For their geriatric 
patience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So she'll show off a little bit, maybe some more empathy. Yeah. Uh, O'Brien tells Picard that this is one way only what they're trying to do. Yeah. So that if they, they won't be able to transfer Pulaski back to the planet if it doesn't work. So if it doesn't work out, well, if it, basically if it doesn't work, they have to just beam her into space yeah. as like energy, which is what she was always worried about to begin yeah, with. Yeah. She's like, that thing that you were worried that was going to happen to you in the transporter, we're going to have to do that. Very real chance so of it happening. Picard basically relieves O'Brien of the burden of having to make that decision. Yes. So he decides that he'll operate the controls himself uh, if she's going to be consigned to oblivion, he says. And O'Brien thanks him. He's like, yeah. thanks for not making me have to do that. Yeah, which is, I that's totally... Right, except then <laughs> when he's beaming Pulaski up, so O'Brien's monitoring the medical scans and Picard beams her up and he's like, it's not working. And it looks like he's about to just like, yeah, consign her to oblivion. And <laughs> O'Brien's like, wait, 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 no, I can fix it. And <laughs> it was like, maybe they should have had O'Brien at the control. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Like Picard, when's the last time you've been operated a transporter? Oh, yeah. Especially under these conditions. Yeah, so, so it's it's very dramatic for a while. We see her go in and out. Yeah, she she like she's all like surrounded in the transporter energy and her patterns like fading in and out, and then she fades in and she's back to her usual self and she's she's younger. Yeah. I don't really understand how this would work because they they haven't really explained what the changes are to the DNA that made them age more quickly. But like when you age, you still have the same DNA, don't you? Like it's still you, but just older. So I don't know how like the the yeah, no, you, you haven't, at the time of this recording, you haven't heard quite the... Uh, I haven't listened to the interview yet, yeah, so um, you probably get Some of it that. is, so we, Jake and I talked about it, some, some of it is nonsense, but less of it is nonsense than she uh, expected, so just... Oh, okay, well, that that's one. cool. I'm looking forward to, to listening through that when we put the edit together. yeah. yeah. Picard at this point tells her what would have happened. I guess that's pretty honest. He's like, yeah, yeah so uh, well, no, I guess first, they also didn't tell I, her. Sorry, I just want to point out, first he gives her a hug. When she oh, arrives, right. he hugs her. Yes, yeah. And which nice. is nice. I mean, it's not the hug of like two people who love each other dearly and are happy to see each other. But it's nice that he is, is expressing nice his joy that she is alive. She is not. He didn't have to like vent her into space yeah. or whatever. But at this point is when he tells her, oh, this is what would have happened if it had worked, which means they didn't give her the choice. No. They, they just... didn't tell her, oh, by the way, if this doesn't work, we're going to have to vaporize you. Yeah. Uh, and then I I really like the way the last uh, scene is done, that we hear Pulaski's final log yeah. over the visual you know, on the bridge. I've, I've never seen a log played out like, I don't not that I can recall no. seeing a log play out like this like over the visuals. Voiceover. It's cool. It's yeah. really nicely done. So she says that the adults of Darwin Station have been returned to normal health. They will remain on Gagarin 4 and continue their research in hopes of one day rejoining their children. So there is still that that sadness that they that the children are a danger to their to the scientists, to their parents. And mm -hmm. then she says and Jake and I talk a little bit about this, but I want to talk about it with you more. Uh she says, scientists believe no experiment is a failure, that even a mistake advances the evolution of understanding, but all achievement has a price. For one brief glimpse of the mysterious blueprint of human evolution, the people of the USS Landry paid with their lives. Their sacrifice is thus noted in this scientist's log. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's interesting because I I think that as I was watching this and particularly listening to that line, I was thinking there's like, oh, there's a lot of um, rhetoric, I think, against scientific advancements with the, the idea of like, well, we shouldn't be trying to play God or, you know, we should just let things be natural and natural is better. And that can be really problematic because natural, like, I mean, First of all, what does that even mean? But just it can be a very anti-science and anti-data driven sentiment that like, mm-hmm. no, if it's not, we shouldn't treat illnesses. We shouldn't get vaccines. We shouldn't, you know, it's not, it's not natural. And I really disagree with that. And at the same time, what we see in this episode is not just science gone wrong, and we've harped on it a fair bit, so maybe I won't say too much more, but it's eugenics. This isn't, this wasn't about trying to improve life. This was about trying to improve a species. And I think that right. is a yeah. very important distinction. Yeah. Yep. So. While this log is playing, we're, we're seeing the bridge. So it's a, this is a voiceover, essentially. Yeah. Uh, Pulaski's log. So we see from the bridge that the ship is now reapproaching the Lantry. We hear the the, the beacon again going yeah. off and, and telling everyone to stay away. Riker tells Worf to arm the photon torpedoes. But before they fire, the entire bridge crew stands up, like at attention and out of respect for the crew of the Lantry. And they fire and blow up the ship. It is destroyed. Yeah. So they head back to, or they set course back for their original destination, Star Station India. And Picard looks very thoughtful as he as he sits down and he says, engage. Yeah. Any last thoughts? There we are. On this episode? I think we covered, we covered a lot of ground in this one. We did. I will say, though, is that we, we should stop using the transporter as like a, like a save point for people. Because then, like, we basically... We, we, we there's like no death or like aging or anything we just like keep resetting like, I, there's a trace of me back from when i was 25 and i liked myself then so could you <laughs> we just reset my age yeah 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 maybe we don't open that door <laughs> i think it's the last time we use the transporter like this because we don't want the transporter to be like a like a day's X at the end of, of episodes, but we've written ourselves into a corner for her, but it really um, reminded yeah. me of like, um, like what, you know, if something happens to your computer or your phone and you like restore it to the last back. Yeah. It's version. a, re- yeah, it's like a restore point. Yeah. That's <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know if, if that's what it's supposed to be, but we, we've started, this is a tw- the second time now we've used it kind of like that. Yeah. In which case, like it, how much tension do you remove from a show? If you know, you can just always like restore point somebody. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of With the First Link. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Our cover art was created by Nathan Nunn, and you can find more of his work at nathannunn.ca. Our theme song is An Amazing Adventure by Flame Lion Studio. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at FirstLinkPod or send us an email at firstlinkpod at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the aging process. Before we go, I want to give one last big thank you to my wonderful sister, Jake Samoshi, for being on the show and telling us all the science stuff we need to know. I'm Ruthie. And I'm Matthew. And whatever starship you serve on, make sure they have a backup of your transporter trays. (laughs) 